0: Good morning. I hope you had a Merry Christmas and I hope you have a happy New Year as we're uh, kind of in this in-between point here. My my family finally made a transition. At least my wife and I made a transition this year. It's kind of been happening more and more, but uh, it's one of those things you're not told as a kid. Like when you're a kid, you get all excited because you don't know what your presents are and you're sneaking around in your parents' room trying to find what they are and, and looking around. When you become an adult, you walk around with your wife and you go, I want that. She goes, okay, and you buy it right there with your own money and then you wrap it up and you go, why are we doing this? But that's, that's kind of the transition we've made finally. I, know, I knew what I was getting a long, long time ago, so I, I opened it up and I'm like, oh, look, I knew I was getting this. So it's just kind of one of, one of those fun things, but we have four kids and when you have four kids, them, it's exciting to watch them open up the presents at your grandmother's house, with your dad, then with us, then uh, then at, a, at, um, at my wife's parents' house, and it, it's fun to watch them get all excited, and then there's that whole other thing that happens afterwards, you guys know what I'm talking about, you suddenly are looking at all the stuff, it piled in. we all pile it in one room, and we're like, what do you do with half this stuff from the dollar store, and you know, you're like, you're going upstairs, and my wife did the whole like, figure out where everything goes now. It's spent all day trying to just reshuffle the toy world and make sure old things are out, new things are in. And- Man, Then you add on to the fact that I'm sitting around going, I really want to get into this book we got, and, and we got this movie over here, we want to watch that, and the kids are begging to play that video game, and then you're turning around, and, the, and it's like, well, we got one more outing because we haven't been really together to do anything outside in a while, we're all sitting around, and this guy got a new mitt, so he wants to go outside, and this guy, so you end up running like crazy. Anybody get that way? Are you already in the middle of that together? All, we're all like, yes. Anybody tired? Wake up this morning in the cold, ready to go back to bed? All right. Let's just take a nap. That's what we're going to do with this sermon right now. And just relax. Um, But really... In all of the hustle and all the bustle and all the preparation for the, the New Year's party that's coming that you're going to go to, that you've got you to make something for, still got family and friends from out of town that are coming over, whatever you're going through or you're from out of town and you're here right now and you're still displaced in your own life, we can wind up losing track of some of the mo- one of the most essential aspects of our lives as Christians. You now, I would say that the essential aspect of our lives as human beings, even if you're not a Christian, and that is we lose track of, um, for us as Christians, we lose track of reading our Bibles, let's be honest. It's like almost a first thing that vanishes. Anybody agree with me on that? You, you wake up, you'll pray, you'll have grace and stuff, but man, it's been a while since you got through a couple chapters in your Bible. Maybe it's been a little while since you had a devotion time because you've been running, running, running for the last week and a half. And now you're ramping up to your New Year's and you're looking at New Year's resolutions and we all know where we go to a, to find our New Year's re- resolutions now, Pinterest, because you're looking at everything on there from what you want what to you, what your new recipes and diets are to your new exercise to your new... All this new stuff is found somewhere out there on your Instagram, your Pinterest, somewhere in the internet world, and you're starting to form your resolutions for who you're going to be and what you're going to do over the next couple of years, whatever. The bottom line is, I want to challenge you guys, if you do any resolution at all, there needs to be a, a clear resolution that we are in the word of God as much as possible. It should be our ma- a major input this year, our biggest input. And I wonder then if we even think of it that way. That I say that, and some of us go like, dude, I don't even like reading. Other people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've read the Bible a few times. I got the Bible down. I've studied it. I know what's going on here. And I want to just challenge you, because I didn't say get in the Bible. I say get into the Word of God. And the reason why I want to say that is because I think that one of the reasons we don't get into the Bible enough is because we have a disconnect between this being the Word of God, literally God's words to us, and this being a kind of a a just a book that we're supposed to read for some instructions and some, some practical living stuff. And I want to challenge us on that this morning because really it may be because we don't think it's the Word of God, it may be because we lose track of that fact that we don't actually read it with the same intensity with the same realization that what you and I have here is an opportunity to look at God's word and let it challenge us and let it shape our lives and, and transform us. And so I want to ask this question. I'm going to play a skeptic this morning, as I sometimes like to do, and just ask this basic question. Okay, okay, how do you even know that's the word of God anyway? There may be some of you in this room who aren't Christians, and I say that the Bible's the word of God, and you're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, I know it's like important to Christianity, yeah, but how is it the word of God? Well, I want to put. I want to say two things. First of all, um, there's two ways Christians will talk about this. And the first way is we dive into it, we say, is the Bible accurate, and is it really the Word of God? And I want to stop there. I'm not here to argue this morning that you're, that the, this book is accurate historically. It is. I can I can do that. I can talk of the tens of thousands of manuscripts. I can talk of the archaeological evidence. I can speak to you guys about all of the pieces that fit together to show how old the actual manuscripts are. The bottom line is scholarship pretty much agrees today regardless of what side you're on or what university you've gone to, um, that this is the best, not this personal one, but the Bibles that we have today in English are the most accurate Bibles that we've had in the history of humanity since the original pieces were written. Now we we are very close, we very much are as close to the original words as you possibly can. They're not distorted. They're not transformed. They're not changed. There's no Vatican's conspiracy out there trying to make it up and make up stuff in the Bible and stick it in. None of that's gone on. What you've got is as close to the original documents as you possibly can. So let's just set this aside for a second. Just, just, say, just go with me. If you want to know more, you can go back to our website and look up our static series and look at that. But we're not going to argue whether the Bible's accurate. What I want to argue with you guys is, is it really God's word? It's one thing for a history, history, accurate history. It's one thing for it to speak of true events. It's another thing to speak of it as actually being from God speaking to humanity, the being beyond our universe, is desired to speak to this small, tiny pinpoint of a planet in the midst of his vast creation, to speak to us, pinpoints on that pinpoint of a planet, to tell us about himself, and to give us instruction for life and salvation and everything else. And so how would we go about that? How do you even begin to dive into that question to look at this? Should we read this as the word of God? And the answer to this is we start here. First of all, let's just, let's just start with letting the Bible speak for itself. <clears throat> the Bible is, is in and of itself as a historical document trying to claim something. And, it, and what it does is it claims it's God's word. It claims it's God's words much like I claim my letters to my wife are actually my letters. Now, I was going to pull out an old love letter that I written to my, my wife, but they're all so embarrassing. I'm not going to do that to myself. So, but I want you to trust me that when I've, these letters that I've written, when you get to the bottom of them, I've signed them myself. And it says, from, or your love, or whatever, and my name. And it's important to note that when we care about somebody, when we care about a document that we've sent out, we put our name on it. Isn't that true? You do that in business, you do that in life, you may even put it in code, you may have a pet name you give to each other, whatever, but the bottom line is when you typically write a card, a Christmas card, or anything else that you've done, you want people to know who it's from, so you've signed it. I want to let you know that God wanted us to know this was from him. He wanted us to know it, so he signed, he signed the documents. He signed in 1,619 verses, this is the word of the Lord. This is God said these kind of things. And this is, this is what we see in this. In fact, it's oftentimes quotations of what the Lord has spoken. And so what we're seeing is that the Bible attempts to claim, it makes the claim, no, this is truly God's word. God has signed this thing. He's speaking to it. And you go, well, Greg, I, I hate to inform you this. Anybody can write this is from God. I know that. We all know that. I mean, I'm not sitting here going, see, case closed. Since 101,619 verses said it's from God. So we're all good. No, 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 no. That's not an argument. But it's interesting. Because if the Bible's making the claim that it's from God, and this is God's word, then it, then it should have a deeper impact. There should be something more. In fact, I want to put it this way. Imagine that it's many, 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 many years later, God willing, I, I'm, my wife is alive and I'm dead. And not God willing that, but you know that my I have a great grandchild somewhere who's come over to my my wife's house, and my my little frail wife is sitting there and catches my great granddaughter sitting in the house looking through these really embarrassing love letters, which are now really really old. Some of them have fallen apart. In fact, my name has fallen off some of them, and she's reading this thing. And she and my wife goes, "What are you doing?" She's like, "I'm reading these letters. Who are these from?" They're so embarrassing, right? So she she takes this and she goes, "They're from your, you're from your great grandfather," and you know she's raised in a scientific age because it's the future where everything is more scientific than it is today, and she looks and says, "No, it's not. How do I, how do I know it's from from Grandpa, oh, my great-grandpa? How do I know that?" And my wife goes, "Because." One, I told you it's from him, so I should know. But put that aside for a second. How would I know this? There's no name on it. Even if it is signed, it could have come from somebody else. How do you know that it wasn't a forged written thing and you forgot or whatever? And my wife leans over and says, here, let me read it to you. And as she reads it, she puts it down, tears down her face because she misses me. And... (laughs) And she, and she looks and says, do you want to know why? Because his fingerprints are all over it. Look, this phrase here, he used to say that all the time. He used to flip these words like this constantly. He, 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 he misspelled this all the time. This is, here's things that he knows about me in the text that only he knew. And she starts pointing out these things that give it an identity, that show it's me regardless of whether my signature is on there or not. I find it interesting, but as you start to study and read through the Bible, as you start to get deeper and deeper into this text, God's fingerprints are all over this thing. It is everywhere in here. And what's interesting, it takes somebody to know somebody. You ever notice that? If I, You ever pull that up? It takes somebody to look at that and be able to say, I see, my wife would say, I see him in here because I knew him. You may not have known him, but I know him. And there's a relationship between knowing somebody's voice in a letter and knowing somebody personally. Because they correspond, because it's truly their words that are coming out. And I want to challenge that perhaps, just perhaps, there's some hints that people who knew God's voice were trying to tell us that this book was God's word. Because they could see who he was. They knew God well. They knew God intimately. I doubt anybody in the room would doubt that Peter, the apostle, didn't know God well. I think even general in our culture, people would say, yeah, Peter, St. Peter, he knows God well. He walked with Jesus. I mean, Jesus was God, so he walked with him. Now, we can argue how Jesus is God and stuff at another point, but we can, we'll go through that. But we can assume that Peter at least knew God, knew the voice of God, understood who God was. So it's interesting Then in the book of 2 Peter, he says, hey, no prophecy, speaking in general of the scriptures, was ever produced by the will of man but spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's saying there's something in here that, that it's God's voice, God speaking. It's not from just men. I, I've, I can read this to you. This is how it works. It, look, there, that's, that's how God speaks. This is how God... There's some connection there. Another person, the apostle Paul, says very similar things in the book of Second Timothy. He's read through the Old Testament, the Gospels, and Paul is writing. He says, look, all this scripture is breathed out by God. God is literally bringing it out, breathing it through. Inspired is another word for that. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. In fact, Paul takes it even to another level. He says, look, this is not only breathed out by God, when you live it out, the people who do that look like, they look like Jesus. They live a life like Jesus. Practically speaking, this word not only is God's word, but it's powerful like God's word to change people. As you know, he'd be thinking God's word is that word which created in the beginning, which is constantly recreating and changing us. And so he adds that aspect to it. It all fits in his mind to be this book has his fingerprints all over it. That's what they're saying. And so it's interesting. We, we can look at a couple of people who knew him, but then you've got aspects. To, God himself is saying, look, the, this Bible is indeed my word. So he goes on with not just signatures, but what we get is this that God personally identifies it. Well, what do I mean by that? <clears throat> Again, we can, conceive, we can understand the scriptures accurate. in in its text. That we're not reading something and you're not running into verses that weren't included by the original eyewitnesses, namely the apostles. They knew Jesus, they'd seen him. Luke had gathered information together and and had written it down, verifying it from eyewitnesses like Mary and and other people. And so we have these, the actual documents that they wrote in a sense. We, We have accurate representations. And so we know that Jesus claimed a lot of things and we know that we have his claims very clearly in scripture, one of the things that he claimed was that the Old Testament was God's word. One of the ways he does this is, is, is experienced or referenced here in Matthew 19, verse 4 through 5. Jesus says it this way. Speaking to the Pharisees in the debate about marriage, he, he says, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, So, the creator is the one who makes them in the beginning, and then he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You go, Okay, well, yeah, that's a quotation that God said, right? You go back to the Bible, go back to the Old Testament. It never says, And God said this. It is just the narrator speaking in the text. And what you're running into is that basically Jesus is saying, wherever you see the narrator, wherever you see the person behind it, the author speaking in the text, that guy is God. There's a connection. In fact, Jesus, will, in a, in a situation, will actually look in the middle of temptation and say, we shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in that manner, he's quoting scriptures. And he's stating that this word is indeed God's word. He'll endorse the New Testament later. New Testament is God's word, is instructed by the Spirit, and and this happens actually in John chapter fourteen. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So Jesus is sitting there going, "I'm not going to be a bad teacher. I'm not going to give you guys a lesson. Write it on the board, and if you forgot to write it down, you're all doomed. I'm sorry." No, he wanted us to get A's. He wanted us to have all the information we needed. He wasn't going to just give it out to us and woof, it's gone into the ether out there somewhere. No. God wanted us to know his word and to know we had it. And so the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles in order to give remembrance to all that Jesus had said to them. In fact, later he'll say, I have many things to say to you, many more things, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. And he's saying, basically, it's saying the Spirit's going to speak the things that God tells them to speak. They write this down. This becomes what we have as our New Testament. This is a process of inspiration which God brought about the Word of God using human beings, using their personalities, but making sure the author is always still God. And so what's going on here is Jesus saying, the Spirit of God who comes upon you is going to lead you into writing these things that are from me. And so Jesus is in fact in some way endorsing these things. Now, I think this is important that Jesus endorses the Old Testament as the Bible and endorses the New Testament formation as his word. Because the bottom line to me is any guy who rises from the dead, I'm I'm following that guy. I mean... Dead and comes back to life and has claimed he's God. And in the situation that he lived in with the Jewish people, that's heavy. You don't just dismiss that easily. This is the guy who said he's God, has risen from the dead, beat death itself after a horrible crucifixion, being stabbed in the heart, all this stuff. You want to hear more about that? Go back to our last year's Easter series on when faith, where faith begins. And you can hear all that evidence. And it's pretty convincing to the point where you're like, wait a minute. This, this, this one who rose from the dead, this is what he says. I think he kind of knows God pretty well and probably can endorse that the Bible is indeed God's word. Now, Holy Spirit finally reveals the Bible as God's word, but he reveals it in another way. He reveals it personally. And here I can only speak for myself. And I can speak from other, from other witnesses that I've read about and I've talked to, and those of you in this room, you can only attest for yourself. But there's a doctrine in the scriptures called illumination. It's an odd t- doctrine. Very few people have heard about it. But the idea is that once you become a Christian, once you're saved, there's something that occurs where the biblical text becomes alive in a way that it starts to convict you and change you. I'll tell you, I've experienced this so powerfully in my own life. There were times I'd read the Bible and I'd be like, oh, I read this is an old book, you know, kind of thing as I was growing up. I was exposed to it, I didn't understand it all the way, went through some of the Sunday school materials and stuff. But when I became a Christian in my senior year of high school, I went back to the Bible and then I opened it up to the book of James. I don't know why James seems to be the one that smacks all young, young believers, but it sure smacked me. Every page seemed to be talking directly to me, about me who I was, what I needed to adjust, what I was doing. I couldn't stop writing. I couldn't stop reading. It was as if God, I would ask a question and God would answer the question in the next cha- in the very next chapter. It was living to me in a way that had never lived before. It was challenging me in the places that I never wanted to be challenged before. It was revealing sin that I never revealed, never thought was mine. And there's something about suddenly that I understood and I recognized the voice that was there, the very voice that called me, the very voice that brought me to faith was sitting here in a text speaking to me, even more transforming me in a way that I wasn't looking to be transformed necessarily at the beginning. Now I long for it because I realize God's word is powerful and sharp. It's like a scalpel that's shaping and changing us and cutting away things. And what you have here is a vibrant, beautiful, living word. What do I mean by living? Does it change? no. It's interacting with us. It's challenging us. It's alive. In some ways, Jesus put it this way. Speaking of salvation, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So if you're a Christian, you know Jesus' voice. And I can attest, having known his voice, that it's in this book. Personally, I know it is in this book. And if you're a Christian, you can say amen to agree with that if you want. But it's there, amen? Amen. Now, you're going, that's nice, Greg. I really appreciate this encouraging moment of quoting the Bible to convince me that the Bible is God's word. But I'm not really that convinced. Because you're quoting the Bible. Okay. I get it. Yeah, anybody can say it's God's word. Even the authors can say, I recognize God's voice in here, and they can do it for a false reason. And you could claim that I'm doing it for a false reason because I'm a pastor Or we're Christians and we're all gung-ho about our own religion. I get that. So why don't we look at some of the other fingerprints then? Why don't we take and see if these people are lying to us or whether this is actually God's Word? I want to point to three different fingerprints here. I want to start with this, by looking at God's fingerprints in the Bible. The first fingerprint is the Bible is reliable in history and the future. Say, what? We'll start with the history point. If you were back in the 1800s, You would have been in a time period where skepticism was the height. People were skeptical about the Bible in every institution, everywhere you could go. Sure, there were other, there were Christians fighting for it. It was a lot of stuff going on in the culture. But in the higher institutions, everybody scoffed at the Bible, mainly and especially the Old Testament over a few things. And the biggest one they loved to point to was the non-existence of a group of people called the Hittites. Oh, you all know the Hittites, those made-up, fanciful, ancient creatures, then people of the Old Testament who everybody's running around in. Yeah, that's how they would have thought about it until in the early 1900s. They go into the very ground in Lebanon and they dig up the entire Hittite civilization, practically. One of the largest empires pre-Babylon than we've ever seen. The Bible wasn't lying about this group called the Hittites. We just hadn't looked that hard. In fact, the Hittites are now one of the most, or one of the broadest... Um, they're actually entire chairs. You got Egypt, and you got the Hittites, and you got the Babylonians. All of these are under our different seats and classes you can take in ancient history courses. The Hittites are now well known and well so well established. It's foolish to think that we never thought we ever thought they didn't exist. And yet the Bible is very clearly pointing these out. There's a couple of people in the book of Luke in the book of um, in the book of Acts that Luke wrote. And when we, when we found them, they were they're calling the name of these governors in this town a certain name. And they're like, those names don't exist. A few years later, they dug it up, and on a pillar that existed only within a span of 20 years, those very names did exist, but those very people with those names. Establishing the date at which these events occurred in the book of Acts. It gets that accurate in its history. But it's even weirder when we start looking at things like prophecy, In fact, if you want, open up to Ezekiel chapter 26 with me, and we'll take a look at one of these prophecies. This is probably one of those that works the best, but there are are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies like this that come true about cities, about locations, about people, and then the Messianic prophecies, which are hundreds themselves. But we'll start here in Ezekiel chapter 26. It's about a city called Tyre. Now, in the ancient world, Tyre was roughly up in North, up in Le- Lebanon area on the coast, and Tyre and Sidon were called the twin cities. Both considered as horribly like evil cities, but the Phoenicians used them, and they loved these cities. They were their capitals, and they, their entire maritime trade would occur out of these cities. And so, in the eleventh year of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel is speaking, "Son of man, because Tyre is said concerning Jerusalem." Aha. The gate of the peoples is broken. It swung open to me. It shall, I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you, as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place, For the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And she shall become plunder for the nations. And the daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. King of kings with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a host of many soldiers. He will kill with the sword your daughters in the mainland. He will set a siege and wall against you and will throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering rounds and on and on it goes. Now, that last part is, is kind of interesting. Ezekiel writes this roughly in about 592 to 570 B.C. Jerusalem has been sieged by the Babylonians, a very large empire in the ancient world that was established roughly in modern-day Iraq, and it spread all the way out through all the Middle East. Now, this country had a king named Nebuchadnezzar who was very powerful, and he was now basically trying to expand his kingdom. And so it wouldn't be a hard guess for a prophet to go, oh, no, Nebuchadnezzar and is going to go knock down Tyre. You know, they're, they're still standing strong. who will go after them next, especially since Ezekiel lived in the land of Babylon and was riding it from there. But what he couldn't have predicted is the other weird things going on. Nebuchadnezzar did indeed come, and the story is interesting. He sieges Tyre for three years, uh, three years after this prophecy. Not a difficult prediction to make. But he marches up, and he comes against Tyre, he sieges it. He breaks through the walls and starts killing the people on the mainland. Well, most of the rich people had gotten in their boats and sailed across to an island that's just off of Tyre that was also known as Tyre. It's the rest of the city. And So basically, these Phoenicians are sitting there, and up comes Babylon, starts killing them. And they go, sailing, sailing, over the... Then they get on their little island. They turn around, and they go, because they can't get to them. Babylon doesn't have boats. And they're not a, they don't have a, uh, a maritime army or any navy. Or, they did nothing. And so Tyre's just sitting over on their island going, Hey, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar, have a nice birthday. You know, off, See you later. And that's exactly what he did. He kind of packed up his stuff, went on. Tyre stayed on the island until things fell apart, rebuilt on the mainland. Along came another and another and another, and on they go all through these years. But finally, about 300 years later, a young man gets it in his mind after he's been trained by a, a very a wise, intelligent philosopher named Aristotle that he wanted to take over the world. And he was the king of Macedon. His name was Alexander. We know him as the Great. Rises up and starts conquering Persia and conquering these, these areas and taking over until he also in India. But on his way down the coast of the, of the Mediterranean, he comes upon the city of Tyre. And they see these armies coming because they've had many other nations attack them over the years, as the prophecy does say. And they go, oh, we know what to do here. Pack on their boats, sail across to the, to the island, sit down and go, na-na-na-na-na. And that's what they would do. Well, Greece wasn't going to have anything with this. Alexander's so ticked off, looks at his armies and tells them, pull every stone down from this city and throw it into the ocean. And for weeks, they tear everything down, scrape clean the entire original city, tossing in the ocean, breaching a, creating a causeway that goes all the way across to the island. Which then, Alexander's armies realized, this is 300 years after this prophecy has been said, that every stone would be thrown in the ocean. That they would sit there, and there would be scraped clean, flat, like a bare top of a rock. And they went across, conquered the island, wiped the island out, to the point where it was never rebuilt. To this day, there is a place called Tyre, but it's not a city. It's a small fisherman's village, in which they sit and they spread their nets out and clean them off day in and day out as we speak today. She shall be in the midst of a sea, a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. How does this book know what was going to happen? 300 years later, let alone centuries later, that the city would never be rebuilt. The bigger of the two cities, Sidon still stands as basically a city today, but Tyre has no city, even in the 21st century. My friends, the Bible does this time and time again. Accurately nails the time period in which Jesus, the Messiah, would come. Nails the way in which the Messiah would be crucified and die. And all the other pieces that apply to it. You have all this prophecy there just with the Messiah, let alone with this city, with Sidon, with Jerusalem, with other places all around. In fact, with Jerusalem, Jesus himself shows his ability to prophesy and knowing of the future as he, his disciples come out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, come marching up on a hill, sit down with him, and, Jesus says, and they say to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings, pointing basically to the temple complex. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one, here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Herod had been working seventy years to rebuild this thing, make it beautiful and powerful and amazing. It inlaid it with gold and all this artistry. And here is a little peasant prophet sitting on the side of a hill, telling his rag of muffin, rag of muffin band, yeah, that place is going to be torn down." Here, no Jewish man in his right mind would think that would occur, and yet, in seventy A.D., a revolt would begin, in which in which Jerusalem was the target by Rome to crush the Jewish rebellion fully and finally. They marched in a man named Titus, surrounded the city, and ultimately when they broke through, they defiled their temple. And then again in 140, when they did it again in Bar revolt, they came in and leveled the temple, tearing it down, pulling out all the gold, and melting, then burning the entire temple and removing it so that there's not a stone left on top of it. Say, so, oh, well, that was known after. No, this was written in 54 to 55 AD. 10 to 15, 20, 30 years later, it's going to happen. It's, it's so far away. Guys, you, I mean, predict something that's going to happen with that kind of accuracy 20 years from now. 30 years from now. This isn't just a book, but God's fingerprints are all through here. Those who knew his voice said, Yes, he's there. He starts to reveal that, Yes, he's there just in his prophecies. Well, let's take another fingerprint here. Number two, the Bible's reliable in science. People go, No, it's not. Science and faith are opposed to each other. Since when? If you know me long, if you've been here long enough, you know that I, I laugh at that thought. The more research I've done in science, the more research I do in the Bible, the more I find them accurately conveying the same concepts. Let me just give you a simple one. Don't take yourself into the 1800s. Don't take yourself, get yourself out of your 21st century mindset way back before the refrigerators, way back before there was even um, railroads or anything else. Let's go back to the early, early 20, oh, let's go now, let's go to the 1700s BC. Do you know how creation narratives went, science went? Where did it all come from? There was this stuff called chaos and the primordial chaos arose two gods who battled it out and as they slayed each other, their blood filled the sky for the morning and the darkness filled the night. Blah, 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 blah. And it was all based out of this concept of primordial chaos. Whether you were the Greeks whether you were the Romans or you were Aristotle, it didn't matter who you were, you came with the concept that there was already something and it was all chaotic. In fact, all of ancient history is dealing with the why is there order instead of chaos and how those two things are fighting it out. That's the concept of early creation. And along comes Moses. Born in Egypt, raised in an Egyptian thing, heard all the chaos matter and all that stuff and goes, no, God told me. In the beginning. Not everything at a beginning. That started somewhere back here, and he made it all out of that beginning by himself. And we think, oh, that's such, that's such common knowledge. Yeah, for somebody who's lived after 1940-something when Edwin Hubble sat over here up on the mountain, looking out his telescope and realized, wait a minute, there's a red shift going on. And red redshift is the galaxies moving further and further away from our galaxies as things are spreading out in the universe. And so scientists sat down, and started looking at it, inferring things, and looking back and going, "Oh, wait a minute! Um, all this collapses together into a point. This is there was a, to a beginning point where it all started. Before that, science held to the idea that the universe was infinite. As much as we even dislike the Big Bang in one sense and all that stuff, let's just realize all science has been saying when they say that is there's a beginning to the universe. The time started somewhere way back here. Wait a minute, Moses already said that. How did he know in a world where nobody said that? A world where nobody believed it until early in the 1900s. as the science is accurate. And The Bible is accurate about its science. In fact, the ancient world ran around wondering why there was order instead of chaos and believed that the gods were holding things together and doing all this stuff. Well, the Bible does come along and say God is holding it all together, but he says that God's holding it together by his word, according to the book of Hebrews. Like, well, what does that mean? Well, along comes the scientific revolution in the 14, 15, 1600s, all the way rolling out from there and comes into our time period where suddenly we got guys sitting around going, E equals MC squared. That explains relativity. We all go, he's a genius. That's the law of relativity. So simple. Fits on a fits on a post. Fits on a stamp, for goodness sake. Most of the equations for for physics, chemical physics, all this stuff fits. These constants and these laws fit on stamps. They're small. They're elegant. They're beautiful. Also, strangely enough about these things, they exist everywhere in the universe. They have power over everything in the universe where they're supposed to have power. In fact, as far as we can tell, they exist everywhere at the same time for everybody and they're powerful, elegant, beautiful, simple. And we go, "What is this? If you had looked up that list, that's, that list and gone back only 20, 30, maybe 100 years, and picked up a theology book, the, that list is defining what we say is the Word of God. The Word of God is omnipotent, all-powerful over everything. It is omnipresent. That means everywhere. It's simple. It's beautiful, elegant. All these pieces were how theologians define the word of God. It's how we define laws. All we are looking at in the scientific world is what science, Christian scientists meant to see. God has spoken in the universe in order and he's held that universe and we should be able to find that universe and all we're doing is writing it down. Coming to human approximations of what God's word is doing, holding the universe together. How does the Bible know we should be able to look into the universe and discover these things? No other, other, no other religious book states this stuff. My friends, this is not just anything, this has his fingerprints all over it. The Bible's reliable also in human psychology. That's the last one we need to realize. <laughs> I love this verse. It's from the book of Genesis just after humanity is pushed away from God and sinned. God comes to Adam and Adam says, "I heard this why are you afraid why were you hiding?" He said, "I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself." Analyze this for 1 second. I was afraid. Why were you afraid? Because I was naked. I was exposed. Something's wrong. Why is it we as human beings do not want to be fully ourselves? We mimic, we act, we We posture, we pose, we do everything we can to keep ourselves from being seen. And inside so many of us is insecurity, fear, pain, guilt, stuff we don't want out. And because we're afraid of other people's judgment, we hide ourselves and when suddenly I've had something horrible happen to me, I've been abused, or some horrible thing's happened to you, you've been raped, or some evil thing has happened to you where you have been diminished and demised and you've been put down, you feel ashamed. Why do you feel ashamed when it's happened to you? You fear and you hold and you hide because of the things that have happened to us and the things that we've done. And so we hide from and we, and we posture, and that's not us, and things start acting really bad and broken. Add to that from the fact that we were created to image that which made us, and so we gather things around us to make ourselves feel better, so we feel valuable. All of human psychology is found within the first three chapters of the Bible. And I think when we really look at it and think about it, we go like, yeah, who doesn't disagree that our world is broken? Who doesn't disagree that our societies are messed up no matter how many times we've attempted to make utopia? Who doesn't disagree that inside every human being has something wrong? So the Bible has already said that's what's going on because we've sinned. The human condition is that of being stuck in sin. Separated from God. So we end up with manifest weird problems. Oh sure, our cultures will tell us they're okay. But ultimately... We're dissolving inside. And society is dissolving around us. And everybody pretty much agrees. Just go listen to the music. Look at modern art. Go watch an 80s movie if you want. Real pointlessness. (laughs) We've said this for years. People, God knew it. He said it clearly. It was no wonder then that blew us away when my wife was in one of her courses and her professor held up the bible and says you know why i believe this is the word of god and he's looking at the class and like and he's like because when i open this it knows me it knows us and perhaps that's why we don't read it because when we open it it exposes what we're hiding it exposes where we're broken And the scalpel of God, which is his word, steps in to challenge us, to shape us, and call us out. No wonder the challenge is so hard to make the word of God our biggest input. It's so much easier to hear Netflix tell us what we are. So much easier to hear the internet and our friends and everything else resound to us how we should be. But when you pick up the word, You open its pages and you let it speak and examine you. There's no escaping that God wants to use and change you to the greatest you you can be. Scary? Yes. Powerful? Indeed. It's His Word. It's his word. I want to challenge you to get in it. Would you bow your heads? Father, I pray for all of us that um, we might be a people who actually allow your word to challenge our hearts. Help us to open it up, be in it every day, not just read it, but to let you speak to us God, for those who are already doing that, bless them. Let them keep going. Give them a full head of steam to keep wanting to know you more and more. For those of us who are wrestling to get back to it, who've lost it in the hubbub of the season, bring us back, we pray, that we might know you more and hear from you daily. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.